My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Nick, who is uh, the, 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 the lead pastor who normally preaches, he's off at another church actually helping out um, another church. There's a pastor there who has been asking Nick for years, hey, can you come give me a break and preach for me for a week? And so um, he was finally able to do that, so he's off doing that. Um, I did also want to mention um, the church picnic next week. It's at Woodland Creek uh, uh, Community Park, just up the street here, just off of Carpenter. Um, and so I uh, just wanted to make that known to you as well. Well, this morning, we're going to spend time in the book of Ruth. And so if you have a Bible, um, there should be some in the chairs in front of you. If you don't, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth. Um, it's, it's right in between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel um, in the Old Testament. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, keep this one. Uh, that is yours. It's our gift to you um, to go home and read it. Um, if you just forgot your Bible, that's okay too. Um, just don't take this one with you. Um, but what I wanted to do um, was really just take a look at the situation here with Ruth. And, and to start us off, um, in the 1930s, at the, at the height of the Great Depression, which was the largest economic collapse in human history, millions of people lost their jobs, businesses closed, poverty skyrocketed, many were without hope. And in the midst of this, if this wasn't bad enough, we also suffered in the United States one of the largest climate disasters in our history. Due to poor farming techniques coupled with drought, over 100 million acres of land in the Great Plains dried out and caused massive black dust storms throughout the country. These dust storms blanketed dust throughout the country, starting in Oklahoma as soil from the Great Plains made it all the way to Washington, D.C. The Dust Bowl, as it was called, caused the livelihood of tens of thousands of farmers to literally blow away in the wind. By the end of the decade, upwards of 500,000 people were left homeless and poverty-stricken. Many of them ended up moving to California. Photo photographer Dorothea Lane um, took some of these pictures which you're looking at, and she photographed these families who are moving, and, and, and these pictures have come, become some of the most recognizable in U.S. history. This last one um, is known as the migrant mother. Many of you have probably seen this picture before. The reason why I bring up this picture in particular is because this woman's story is not all that different from Ruth's and Naomi's in the book of Ruth. The look on hopelessness on this woman's face is very similar to the hopelessness that we see with Naomi. And so as we go through this story, as we talk through this story, um, I wanted to kind of put a, put a, a face to the name and, and help us to kind of see in person what's happening here in Ruth. And so with that in mind, uh, let's stand. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. As a reminder, we stand when we read Scripture as, as, as um, a way of saying we honor the, the, the Word of God, and we respect it, and we revere it as the Word of God. So let's read chapter 2, picking it up in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man 
from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she told her, or she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in the charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me gain and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we need you this morning. We believe that this is the very word of God, Lord, but, but we are hard-hearted. Um, we need you to, to teach us. We need you to, um, to mold us into your image so that we would understand. Jesus constantly says, he who has an ear, let him hear, Lord. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see you more clearly. And Lord, may we worship you through this story of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. In Jesus' name, amen. Please go ahead and have a seat. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to specifically look at Boaz. We're going to look at Boaz and look at the story through the eyes of Boaz. So I wanted to kind of set the stage for, for uh, what is happening in this story. Many of you may know it, uh, many of you may not, but I wanted to set the stage. And so... This story starts in chapter 1 with Elimelech, who is married to Naomi. And there is a famine in the land, uh, in the land of Israel, so they flee with their two sons, Malon and Kilian, and they flee over into Moab because of the famine. While in Moab, Elimelech dies, making Naomi a widow. She's cared for by her two sons, and, and Malon and Kilian, uh, they marry uh, Ruth and Orpah, who are Moabite women. But then both Malon and Kilion die as well. It doesn't give a story of what happens to them, but they die and they leave Ruth and Orpah as widows. Naomi has now lost her husband, and she's lost both of her sons. Their situation seems utterly hopeless. Naomi decides, 
let's go home. Let's come back to Israel. Let's come back to Bethlehem. Ruth decides to come with her. Orpah decides to stay in Moab. And in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, we see the, the, the state in which Naomi is in. She says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. I went to Moab full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. I just want to ask, have you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt emptied? Where you feel you have lost everything? And do you feel that way now? And before, before I move on with the story, I just want to sit here in this for a little bit. We've talked a lot recently about the sovereignty of God in Job and the suffering and God being big and in control of all things. And one of the things we will see throughout the book of Ruth is God's care and provision for and in the midst of suffering. Specifically, God's provision for Ruth and Naomi. And this is not something that is unique to this book, but time and time again throughout Scripture, we see that God has specific care for widows. We have a God who fights for the widow. God has a unique care and kindness for widows. In the Mosaic Law, many laws were put into place to make sure that widows were taken care of. We'll, look, we'll, we'll see some of those today. Both in the Old and New Testament, there are many times where God provides specifically for a widow. Elijah resurrects a widow's son, so does Jesus. Jesus highlights the sacrificial giving of a widow in the temple. The book of James says that true and pure religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. God cares deeply for the widow. And now into this dire situation, where Naomi has come back empty, we see that God provides. And as Boaz enters this story in chapter 2, what I wanted to do was to highlight five reasons why Boaz is considered a worthy man. It says that uh, he is a worthy man from the clan of Elimelech. So what does Boaz do? Who is Boaz that he would be called a worthy man from this clan of Elimelech? Now it's Father's Day. And so this sermon, is, it, it, it's going to be geared towards men. However, women, that doesn't mean you can take the day off. Women, I would encourage you to know these traits. Encourage your husbands in these traits. Raise your sons in these traits. Raise your daughters to know these and identify them in boys and in men. But also, women, these traits are characteristics of our Savior. And so you can also grow in Christ-likeness. So would you know these traits for you as well? These traits are for you. And we have a tendency, especially now far removed from Ruth, we have a tendency to go, wow, Boaz is amazing. He's fantastic, and arguably, he is one of the most upright people in all of the Bible. Man, we should be like Boaz. We need to act like Boaz, stand in our faith firm like Boaz, love those around us. If only I could be like Boaz. But I don't think that's why God gave us that story. 
Look at, look at Naomi's words to Ruth when she finds out about Boaz. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. May he, Boaz, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Throughout this story, we see God moving and working. Naomi and Ruth, they come back to Bethlehem empty, and, and they have nothing, but throughout these short four chapters, their story turns from vulnerability to safety. Their emptiness turns to fullness, and it's all a result of the Lord's kindness. And really quick, just side point before we continue on, uh, in the youth group, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about this Hebrew word hesed, which means God's faithful, steadfast, loving kindness. Youth group, this kindness of the Lord here, that's, that's hesed, so that's, that's for you guys. See, ultimately what this book shows us and points us to, points us to Jesus. We are never meant to stop our gaze on Boaz, but instead look up further and see our Savior. He is the perfect culmination of all that Boaz is. The end of the book, we see Boaz is the great-grandfather of King David. And in the New Testament, we see that Boaz is the direct ancestor of Jesus. Now, almost every theologian and pastor for the entirety of the history of the church has seen the connection between Boaz and God and Boaz and Jesus. And it's not merely because of genealogy, but because of character. So what we're going to do is to see how Boaz ultimately points us to our Savior. So first, first characteristic, first reason why Boaz is a worthy man is Boaz follows the law. And I know this by the fact that, that Ruth is allowed to glean on his fields. See, gleaning was where farmers, when they would harvest their field, they would leave the edges of the field unharvested. They were required to by, by the law. Levitica, Leviticus 19 says, when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to his edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, for you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and, and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again, but you shall, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So Boaz knows the law, and he follows the law. 
And it says that Ruth had gone out to glean, to, to, to harvest herself the edges of the field that was left by Boaz. And she comes to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The, the Hebrew here has the sense of, by sheer coincidence, she just happened to fall on the field of Boaz. By following the law, Boaz directly blesses the widow and the orphan and the immigrant with food. Laws for gleaning help us to, to directly see how the commandments of God flow out of the character of God. See, as I, as I mentioned before, God deeply cares for the widow. He cares for the destitute, the marginalized in our society. One pastor says this, that gleaning laws was an expression of God's love and concern for the poor, for the stranger, for the marginalized, a concern that he commanded his people to share. And it's worth noting two things before we move on. First, that this story takes place in the time of the judges. Chapter 1 says that it takes place during the time of the judges, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not very many people were following the law at this time, especially towards the end of that book. And so in the backdrop of the unfaithfulness of Israel, we see the shining light of Boaz's faithfulness in where he says that following the commandments of God are the best way forward. In light of the sin around him, Boaz follows the law. Second in this story, Ruth is a widowed immigrant. And in this society, and, and, and so often in ours, a widowed immigrant would be utterly destitute and impoverished. She would have no financial support. She would have no legal defense. She would be open and vulnerable to those who oppress her. People would look down on her. They would despise her. She would be at the whim of those more powerful than her. See, provision comes to Ruth through the faithfulness of Boaz. And at this point, I'm not, even, I'm not even talking about anything specifically Boaz does specifically and directly to Ruth, but merely by his following the law, Ruth can eat. See, if he would have harvested all his field, if he would have hoarded his profits, he would have more, but Ruth would have nothing. If he would have squeezed every last cent out of his field, those in need around him would starve. So my question to you this morning, uh, among many others, is how do, you handle, how do you handle your finances? How do you view your money? How do you look at your bank account? Do you try and hoard every last cent, every last penny? Do you focus on your own needs and buy things that you have all that you need, you have no wants, maybe even you have more than you need. If you're living this way, you may be depriving those in our church and in our community who are in desperate need. Now, this law of gleaning goes beyond mere tithing. There were other laws in the, in the Old Testament that were forgiving of 10% of their income. This is an addition to tithing, lest we think that as long as we tithe, we've fulfilled our financial commitment to Jesus. Our love for money and things directly contrasts with our love for God and for our neighbor. One theologian says 
says it this way. Economics in ancient Israel had a missional outlook and so functioned as a covenantal thermometer to measure the vitality of Israel's love for God and for their neighbor. When Israel enjoyed a right relationship with Yahweh, the social effect was justice and compassion among God's people. There was an inseparable link between the society that Israel was, or at least what they were supposed to be, and the character of the God that they worshipped. So Boaz follows the law, and he leaves the margins of his field unharvested, and in so doing provides food for Ruth. May we be a people who so love God so intensely that by following him, the natural outcome is that people are cared for and compassion reigns. That we who have would, be so, would so love God that those who are in need are blessed. We have, we have a Savior who completely fulfills the law. He knows the commandments of God intimately, and he perfectly follows them. He was just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is completely righteous, and he never fails to uphold the law. But completely following the rules of God does not make him a stickler or a rule follower or hard-hearted. But in Christ, we constantly see incredible compassion for the hurting and the broken and the sinful. He follows the law where we consistently fail. In following the commandments of God, broken sinners like you and me are cared for. We put our faith in the righteousness of Christ and not our own. The second reason why Boaz is considered a worthy man is he abundantly provides for Ruth. Uh, let's pick it up in chapter 2, verses, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her some roasted grain. And she ate until she was fat, satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. See, this is where Boaz continues to up the ante on what it means to be a worthy man. He, he sees Ruth, which in terms of the law, he has fulfilled everything he needs to do. He's, he's left his uh, field um, and allowed her to glean, if he would have stopped there, he would have obeyed the letter of the law and he would have been righteous. He had done his part. However, he gives her water. He gives her food. In addition to all the food she's gleaned herself, he gives her additional food for her. It, it says uh, that she goes home with basically a 90-pound sack of food. He shows her incredible worth by addressing her by name. He elevates her status. Remember, she's a widowed immigrant who would be seen as the lowest in society, yet Boaz takes the time to make sure her needs are met. Sinclair Ferguson says, the real evidence of character and the ultimate test of spiritual maturity is not how someone reacts to the great, the famous, the rich, and the noble, 
but how that person has responded to the marginalized, the unnoticed, the poor, the struggler, and the needy. It's not who you know, but the needy for whom you care that is the real measure of men and women. It is certainly the real measure of those who serve Christ. My family have, and I have only been here for a couple of months, and, and I do just want to say uh, in our time here, we have seen just how incredibly generous this church is. Incredibly generous. We have been on the receiving end of that generosity, so on behalf of my wife and I, thank you. This church is incredibly generous. In addition to all that giving um, that, that goes to Project 92 and to the missionaries and to many of other uh, outlets throughout the city, I want to encourage you that your giving flows out of your love for God. And so it's, it's not in vain, but, but we're growing in gospel faithfulness here in Lacey and also throughout the world through your financial giving. That is no small thing. So I want to encourage you with that. Continue to give. God is doing something. Most of us in this room have been richly blessed by God where we have all that we need. Many of us have much more than we need. What if instead of being defined by how much stuff we have, we were defined as a church by what we gave away? Instead of being defined by the American dream or acquiring more wealth, we were defined by being so generous that our blessing pours out into the streets, into our neighborhoods, into our communities, that anyone who had need would be blessed, especially those whom our society believes doesn't deserve it. We would be like Boaz and quickly attend to the needs of the poor, the widowed, the immigrant, and the needy in our society. Would we be a people who would do that? Puritan pastor Richard Baxter says that we have a greater work here to do than merely securing our own salvation. We are members of the world and of the church. We must labor to do good to many. What if we were known by not what we have, but by what we gave away? See, the reason is we have a Savior who abundantly provides for us. For us sinners who are in need. Philippians 4 says, My God will supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us give us everything, graciously give us all things? Many of you are, are, are football, football fans. Now, those football players, they make a lot of money, okay? Millions of dollars, some of them. Now, every so often, if you're watching a game, some shenanigans happen on the field, and they eventually get fined an amount of money. Now, we know for a person who's making millions of dollars, a $10,000 fine, that's kind of a drop in the bucket. Okay, all right, I'll pay it. No, no big deal. When we consider all the spiritual blessing that Christ has lavished upon us, giving away mere money is a drop in the bucket. We have been given everything through Jesus so we can freely give abundantly because we have a Savior who has no lack of grace for us. The third reason why Boaz is a worthy man is he protects the vulnerable. 
Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. He tells her to stay in his field and charge the young men not to touch her. Ruth is incredibly vulnerable, especially in the light of the era of the judges where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, and that's not a good thing. And also, the only person that Ruth knows in this entire country is Naomi. She is almost utterly alone, and she is doing all of this by herself. Boaz is a safe man. Our world is full of unsafe men, both within the church and outside of it. There are men who see vulnerability as a weakness to exploit, who prey on the defenseless and the helpless. We continue to hear stories of men who use their status and power and strength to control and demean and abuse those around them. And women are almost always at the receiving end of unsafe, unworthy men. And I know that some of you have experienced that. Men, the, the women in our care and the women we come into contact with should always feel safe with us. We should be worthy men. We should not be seen as a danger to those less vulnerable than us. What, what makes Boaz worthy in this regard is not, he just doesn't make sure that he himself is safe. He treats Ruth with kindness, but he also makes sure that Ruth is safe from other unsafe men as well. He charges the young men not to take advantage of her. And look at what Naomi says in verse 22, chapter 2. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out, into, uh, go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. See, if she, she was supposed to keep close, stay in Boaz's field... Um, see, being a safe man does not merely being safe yourself, to, but to also do what is necessary to care and protect for the vulnerable and f- uh, protect them from others who are not safe. This is one of the reasons why we fight to work against the ways in which our society attacks the most vulnerable. This is why we fight against the evils of abortion. This is why we fight to end pornography, which traffics and abuses women. We fight to protect those in our communities and in our churches who cannot defend themselves. We help those who need it. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was reading through this book, one of the things that jumped out to me in the words of Naomi was, do not go into another field lest you be attacked. I just kind of want to ask us, how often do we put ourselves in Ruth's, Ruth's shoes? How often are we tempted to go into other fields? God has richly provided us with everything we need. The book of James says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from God. And even more than that, material blessings of of food and, and, and house and children and all those things, he has provided us salvation through his son Jesus. God has welcomed us like Boaz into his field to enjoy everything he has to offer. In Christ's field, 
At his hand are joy and pleasures forevermore. How often do we still return to other fields? We have been accepted by Jesus, but we still return to the field of seeking other people's opinions. We seek satisfaction in the other field of sex or alcohol. Instead of resting in the provision of God, we seek to control our lives and are attacked by anxiety. We don't believe the promises of God that he will care for us or protect us, and so we go into other fields and trust in chariots and horses and other military means to protect us. As Galatians says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. In Christ we have a full provision and satisfaction from God where we will have everything we need. Timberline, stay there. Don't go into other fields, but constantly turn to Jesus. We have a Savior who completely protects us. Jesus constantly fights for his people. He is the good shepherd who does not run at danger, but instead defends his people. As, as Ruth seeks protection, she turns to Boaz and, and, and asks him to cover her in his wings. And so God also covers us and protects us. And there is not one person that God cannot protect. The Lord is faithful. He is our strong tower, and everyone who runs to him will find rest, and he will establish and protect you against the evil one. I know dangers may come, and bad things may happen, but our end is secure. We are sealed. We are protected by our Savior. He will not lose a single one of us. The fourth reason why Boaz is a worthy man is he has self-control. Ruth gleans for the remainder of the barley and wheat harvest. So there's probably about, about a four to five, maybe six week chunk of time in between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So let's pick it up in chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself... And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But where he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she re replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry... He went and lied down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for you are, uh, for all my fellow town. I will, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen, uh, that you are a worthy woman. 
And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but she arose before no one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the the threshing floor. So we have to break down what's going on here. Ruth goes and she puts on her nice clothes. She puts on her perfume. She brushes her hair. um, And she goes and visits Boaz in the middle of the night after he has eaten well and and drank and he's lied down to sleep. And then Ruth, Ruth goes in and uncovers his feet and lies next to him. Now, we, we live in a, in a sex-obsessed culture, from com- commercials to LG, LGBTQ conversations to pornography to pop culture. Our world and our minds are constantly swimming in a world that wants to interpret everything through our sex-related lenses. And often that can affect the way we read the Bible, and as such, many, imper- many people interpret this section sexually. But I don't... I, I don't think Ruth has come to seduce him, but instead he has come to, she has come in the middle of the night to the party and in what, what is in essence a marriage proposal, asking him to protect her and to care for her. She has seen Boaz act honorably, and it's time in the words of, in the words of Abba to take a chance on me, or in the words of the youth, it's time for her to shoot her shot. Now, with that in mind, this is at least a very messy situation. It probably was not the wisest for Naomi to send her daughter-in-law in the middle of the night, all perfumed up, to the bed of a man who was merry in his heart from alcohol. This situation could have been incredibly dangerous for Ruth, and although Boaz has shown himself to be an honorable man, Things might change in the middle of the night. Also, even if it wasn't physically dangerous for Ruth, it could have been socially devastating for her as well, um, as she would have been seen by others as attending Boaz in the middle of the night. She could have quickly been disgraced or shamed because of this. It probably was not the wisest of actions, but what we see, even in the middle of the night, With no one else around, Boaz acts with self-control. It probably was a little weird to wake up and have a woman at his feet. She was perfumed, excuse me. It would not be difficult to put himself, put ourselves in his shoes and to think what he was thinking. A woman has come forward and has been very forward of her intentions with him. But instead of moving forward in sin, he responds to Ruth in kindness, upholds her personhood, and has his mind and actions with the goal of pleasing God. Sinclair again continues on this way, Boaz is an, is an outstanding example, a biblically instructed man who makes wise, instinctive responses in a critical situation. He knows how to apply the principles of godliness found in scripture, he thinks biblically. This is, in essence, a marriage proposal in the middle of the night. And Boaz slows down 
and responds, not with immediately grabbing a hold of what he wants, but with that which is honorable to the Lord. See, self-control isn't about saying no to something. It's about saying yes to something better. I love donuts. I love them so much. But if I go and I eat three of them, it's not going to go well for me. Self-control looks to the better and leaves behind the lesser. Boaz says yes to redeeming and marrying Ruth, which is much better than a one-night stand. See, the sin in us, it causes us to uh, claw quickly at that which does not satisfy. We turn to comfort and acceptance and joy and the stability in the first things we can get our hands on whether or not it can actually bring us those things. But self-control says, I desire those things, but I can have it infinitely more and infinitely better when it comes from the hand of Jesus. So would we be a people that would love Jesus so fully and so deeply that when temptation comes, our first inclination is not to give in to sin, but our first inclination is to love our Savior and obey? As the old hymn says, I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when you art nigh. When God is near, temptations lose their power. Boaz, in the middle of the night, is faced with a messy situation that could morally compromise both of them. He could have given in and taken what was right in front of him, but his love for and obedience to his Savior empowers him to handle this situation in a worthy manner. And he continues to provide and honor Ruth in this process. Men, we should take our example from Boaz. But also we should take our example from Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of messy situations. Instead, he enters them. A woman wiping his feet with tears... That's a messy situation. Talking to a woman at the well, that's a messy situation. Healing a man with a crippled hand on the Sabbath, that is a messy situation. Sending demons into pigs is a messy situation. Eating with prostitutes and sinners is a messy situation. The creator of the universe entered into a messy situation when he became human See, it's a messy situation that we see the incredible compassion of Jesus. Jesus freely enters into our messy situations to heal us, yet he always overcomes, he always overcomes temptation and never loses self-control. Jesus enters into messy situations. Furthermore, Jesus had all the power to save himself, but instead he chose to control himself and provided our salvation. He prayed in the garden before his crucifixion, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass from me, but not your will, I'm sorry, but not my will, but yours be done. He could have taken the quick way out, but he chose to suffer on our behalf. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but it kept entrusting himself to him who just judges justly. He himself bore his, in his body our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We seek what is better, not by giving in to lesser joys. Let us look to Christ as our example of self-control because he does it perfectly for our salvation. The last reason why Boaz is a worthy man is he is a redeemer. How this process would, would often work is, is in ancient Israel, um, if a husband would die, then a relative would, would be called on to provide for that widow. Often this would go into marriage, uh, sometimes not, but they had the responsibility of providing for the widow. But also, uh, the, the, the land is in question here because, remember, it's Elimelech's land. Now, if, if and when Elimelech dies, it should go to his sons. But as we know, his sons, they also died. And so part of this redemption process and redeeming the land was to make sure that the land stayed in the family, that inheritance was taken care of. And so um, people who were going through this situation, like Naomi and Ruth, would not be destitute. See, what the Redeemer would do is he would purchase the land to make sure the inheritance would stay in the family. So Boaz seeks to become a Redeemer. In a very real sense, he's not merely redeeming the land. But he's also redeeming the tragic situation of Ruth and Naomi. He moves quickly. He does not delay. He does not dally. He does not lollygag. He knows what is the right thing to do. And that very next day, after Ruth comes to him at night, he gets up and he does what is right. The very next day, he moves to redeem Ruth. And the process of redemption is recorded in chapter 4. You can read it, but in summary, he purchases the land of Elimelech, and in so doing, marries Ruth, redeeming both the inheritance and redeeming this tragedy. Boaz is a worthy man because he is a redeemer. He does what is needed to fix what is broken. He does not merely provide food for Ruth, but he steps in and provides a future for her as well. One commentator says, taking care of one's dependents and promoting their full participation in the covenant community took precedence over personal wealth and ambition. In a sense, the measure of true spirituality was how one treated his or her neighbors, including family members. A right relationship with Yahweh was shown in caring relationships with others. Caring for those around us like Boaz will cost us. But caring for others should take precedence over our own financial goals. We have a duty not only to our family members, but those, uh, to the members in this church, those in our church, to do whatever is necessary to care for them. Boaz took on the cares and troubles of Ruth as if they were his own. Let us do the same. 
We are of the household of faith, so let us do good to those who are in our care. By purchasing this land, Boaz redeemed the story of Naomi and Ruth. And finally, where Boaz is the redeemer for Ruth, Christ has come that he may be our redeemer. Boaz came to the defense of his family members in the same way Jesus has come to our defense and secured us, secured our deliverance from sin. The great redeemer in all of scripture is not Boaz. He is only a small picture of redemption. No, the great redeemer in all of scripture is God himself. Especially in the book of Isaiah, God says he is the redeemer over and over and over again. God is the great redeemer. Ephesians 1, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Titus 2, Jesus gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Hebrews 9, Jesus' death redeems us from our transgressions. 1 Peter 1, Jesus ransomed us with his precious blood. Timberline Church, Jesus is whom you are looking for. In every situation, Jesus is who you need. Whether you are walking through tragedy like Ruth, you are looking for answers like Job, or fighting temptation like Boaz, Jesus will redeem and reconcile everything. He is the answer. So whether you have been following Jesus for decades or only for a few years or you haven't even yet put your faith in him, in all situations, in every situation, trust in Jesus to be the worthy answer to provide all that we need. Timberline Church, look to Jesus for the answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you... You provide everything you ne we need. We are constantly scrounging and we are constantly scrapping uh, to provide us for things when, Lord, you are gracious, you are kind, and you provide everything we need. May we trust you. Like a good, good father, you come to us and you give us good things. Lord, let us not go into other fields but let us turn to Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for your sal salvation. Thank you so much for all that you have given us. Lord, change our hearts. Transform us into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The ushers are going to dismiss you row by row to come up and take communion, um, and then go back to your seats, and then we'll all take communion together.